This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. The United States is experiencing what's become a familiar pattern an uptick in COVID after the holidays and the big gatherings that accompany them. Hospitalizations have risen eight weeks in a row, though they're below what they were in the last post-holiday period a year ago. Hotspots have cropped up across the country as the new dominant variant, JN1, has quickly spread to account for more than 60% of cases. Jessica Malati Rivera is an infectious disease epidemiologist at the De Beaumont Foundation, which is a philanthropy that promotes public health. Jessica, was this surge right now any, in any way a surprise or is there anything that's unusual about it? To be honest, it's not quite unusual. The virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, continues to evolve as more and more people become infected and the virus makes copies of itself, it mutates, it changes, it gets better at evading our immune systems and making people sick. What's encouraging is that because of our hybrid immunity in the in the population between previous infections and vaccination, not as many people are becoming seriously ill and dying, though we are seeing hospitalizations continue to increase as more and more people become infected. The fact that it's back, the fact that we're seeing a surge, though, is not a surprise. In fact, it doesn't quite actually have the same seasonality as other viruses like flu or RSV, where we kind of see COVID come every few months in these big surges. As an epidemiologist, what does this suggest to you about the future of our relationship with COVID? Yeah, it's a great question because I think we need to be preparing ourselves for living with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, because it is well established in the human population and among other populations in the animal kingdom. And because of that, the odds of us getting rid of it, completely eliminating and eradicating it is unlikely. And so in the same way that we see flu kind of continue to reemerge in our community every year, we'll probably have to be dealing with COVID outbreaks a couple times a year, maybe three, four times a year. Um, but the hope is that between our previous infections and vaccination, we will become better at uh, preventing those serious illnesses and deaths. You talk about sort of getting used to living with COVID. Does that mean we can sort of forget about it, that we can sort of be a blasé about it? It certainly does not mean that. And I think that's a very important point to raise because COVID is not quite yet in the rear view mirror. Yes, the state of emergency has ended, but COVID-19 is here and it's here to stay. And so when I say living with COVID, it means understanding that people will continue to get sick. We need to continue to encourage all of the mitigation efforts to reduce infections and severe illness. That includes masking, staying home when you're sick, testing at the appropriate time, vaccination when it's updated and available to folks, because this is going to be part of our lives. And as you say, the, the federal public health emergency ended in May. Uh, a lot of things went away. The public campaigns about masking, uh, about testing, about uh, about about uh, getting uh, uh, the vaccinations and also the tracking also ended. Is that a handicap to an epidemiologist like yourself? It is a severe handicap. Um, you know, as a alum of the COVID tracking project, our work was 
focused on tracking all of that data at a very granular level from the state level. We were tracking testing and cases and hospitalizations and deaths, and we did that on a volunteer basis. And now, because the emergency is over, you're not seeing the kind of funding that we need to be funding both the CDC and those state public health departments to get that granular data. We have many resources. We have some dashboards, hospitalization data. We have wastewater surveillance. But we are a bit like we're flying blind when it comes to understanding the full scope of what's happening with the virus in our population. And as you say, we don't have it in the rearview mirror yet, but are you concerned that the public may feel like it's in the, in the rearview mirror? I'm very concerned about that. I think, you know, it's difficult to see a lot of people think about COVID as not that serious, think about masking as something that was an artifact of the past. It is a very, very normal thing to mask um, when you're sick, to mask when other people are immunocompromised. It was part of our public health infrastructure in healthcare settings. So the, you know, how political it's become, how contentious it's become is, is quite discouraging because these, these things are effective at helping uh, reduce harm, which is the basis of public health. Jessica, we asked our viewers what they wanted to ask on this topic. Uh, Rebecca Rose in Philadelphia writes, do you think getting back to 2019 normalcy is currently in place or possible? You know, I would actually like to pivot the question a bit because I think the conditions of 2019 and the many years prior to 2019 is how we got here. For many, many years, we were dealing with the defunding and the deprioritization of public health, which is why we were so unequipped and unprepared for the impact of SARS-CoV-2. And as a result, we are now reactive instead of being proactive to something this destabilizing. I don't want to go back to 2019. I want to see a much more well-funded, a much more prioritized public health infrastructure in the U.S. and globally so that we can be better prepared and better uh, uh, responding to um, something as major as a global pandemic. Laura in New Jersey asks, should we be wearing masks? Should public places like gyms report when their instructors have COVID and tell the public? You know, I think masks are a very important part of our Swiss cheese model of protection, right? It's not one thing that's going to completely eliminate risk. Risk is subjective and it is also additive or prevention is additive. So will masks help reduce your risk when you're in very publicly crowded places like airports and malls and, and indoor theaters? Yes, it will. Mandates, I don't think, are going to come back anytime soon. Um, and so as a result, I think it's a very personal choice. I encourage mask wearing in high-risk settings. I personally continue to mask in high-risk settings. And I think it should be part of our public health practice moving forward. Jessica Malati Rivera, an epidemiologist at the De Beaumont Foundation. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.